I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the Acast app, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to get your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. I am Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 37 in our series for 2020, and today's date is Friday, October the 16th. First, I'll be talking to Longtail co-CEO Andreas Zumla, and he'll be talking about Longtail Startup, which is an industry-first online marketing solution with its patented technology delivering a perfect match for every keyword search by potential customers. Perfect for the websites of big clients like Dan Murphy. It has just received a big investment from Investec and is closely aligned with Woolworths. An economist, Saul Leslak, will give his assessment about the budget and what the government could have done better. But now, let's talk to Andreas Zumla. Andreas, congratulations on getting the investment in Longtail. Well, thank you. Thank you. We're very excited. It's a uh, yeah, very, very great moment in the history of the company, obviously. Um, well, we first had the, the first investment from Investec and then the follow-on round from... Uh, from the rule of VC arm, which of course is a great uh, endorsement. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Well, from Woolworths, it's really good because uh, your future is very much in retail, of course. <laughs> yes. Well, our past was in retail already, so uh, we have a lot of online retail clients. We also have clients across other industries, but of course, retail is very important when when you think about e-commerce. Um, and yeah, of course, Woolworths is like a like a massive brand, and uh, we have one client already in the group, 
um, which is Dan Murphy's. Um, but of course, we are hoping to have to have more clients within the group as well. Of course, you, and you've got uh, your new products, Lux Shopping. Yeah. So basically, so th th there's there's one main product or technology, and then there's applications across multiple uh, online marketing channels. So the basic product is actually is like a technology that plugs into the website and gives the website new abilities to create pages in a more flexible way. And then you can use that across SEO, across paid advertising, that you can have one landing page for every single keyword, or also for shopping ads, that you can basically show more products for every single click when people click on the shopping ad. A lot of businesses are now moving towards online, and there's been a huge growth in online shopping, of course, now, COVID. Uh, so where do you see the future? Well, the future in general, I guess, I mean, COVID, yeah, it's a massive disruption for everyone's, I mean, personal life and, and, and health. But, but of course, then, yeah, for how, how people actually, well, they lead their lives and, and they do much more online because it's safer. The direction, it, it's just been, it just has accelerated what was happening already, right? So online, when you looked at the, the share of online, like e-commerce versus like bricks and mortar, the normal, the real world, uh, commerce world, um, the growth rates for online was always quite large already. Um, but what you're seeing now is that, of course, when people can't go to shopping centers and still want to buy things, um, yeah, much more is happening online. So I think people say that online has been, we've been catapulted five years into the future. Um, so we're pretty, we're, we're living in 2025, 20, basically. Right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Uh, but, but the issue is, um, how do you go about, I mean, it's a very, very competitive environment now. So how do you mm. go about securing online customers? Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's going to be more, more competitive because you have, of course, all these pure play online uh, players like, well, like the Kogans, the Catches, who have only done e-commerce. And, and they're obviously really well placed to, to, to get even a bigger market share. Or Adobe Beauty. I mean, this is some of our, our clients. Um, and um, then, of course, you have like the Myers, the David Jones is the, the, the traditional super retail group, like all these traditional businesses who have an online presence, but the online presence was a very small percentage of their business so far. And for them, it's tough. It's very difficult because if online was only 5% of your total revenue, and then suddenly it should be 30 or whatever, like you have to innovate really fast, right? So the challenge for them is that they often work on older platforms, the processes within the business are slower and you have to move really fast in online. So, so it's a challenge for them, um, but that's what we're there for, to, to help. So our technology basically helps them, well, you could almost say leapfrog, right? They don't have to re-platform for have more capabilities and, and be more efficient on, on their website and on the channels. They can basically plug in our technology to, to get functionalities that otherwise would take like one and a half years or two years to, to develop themselves or to do, like, like implement an entire new platform and and that's really that's really important, right? You want to you want to do this fast. So you're saying the technology gives you that competitive advantage, is that right? Correct. Yeah. Well, basically, it gives, it gives you it gives you it gives you a competitive advantage, or you could also think about it helps the traditional businesses catch up with the pure play online players, right? So just think about like search engine optimization. There's just so much. It's such a massive black box. It's so hard to actually know what you have to do to then appear properly in Google and in the first positions or think about like the, the, the Google ads, you spend millions of dollars uh, in, 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 in advertising for every click you pay basically. And you really want to make sure that whatever you spend there 
you you have a good return on investment. And if your website is not flexible enough to make changes to test, right? You test something here and then you know, you see what the ROI is of that test and then you, you develop your website further. If you don't have these systems in place, if you can't actually measure the efficiency of anything you do in online, it's very hard to make the right decisions. You can, you can waste a lot of money. Right, okay, okay. So tell us about the technology itself. I mean, what's yep. so distinctive about it? The technology itself is, what's really special about this is that it's, it, you can you can plug the technology into an existing website platform. Um, let, 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 let's just imagine you have a, you have a website um, and you have, let's say, let's say Maya, right? You have store locations, you have all your products, um, and then maybe you also have reviews and, and, and like some articles about like the different products. And so when people search for something, they search for a product in a location, but they also want to know what's the best, right? Like whatever, your best food processor, uh, that I can buy in Melbourne, right? So this, you have like all these, all these different things together. And if you go to the Maya website, you would have to, you, first of all, you have to find the food processors. Then you, then there's maybe a store locator. And then maybe there are some reviews and articles about like what's the best right now, right? But they're all in different places. So it's really hard to actually like put, put, like fit that together. If you go to a Maya store, you go there and you ask the shop attendant, hey, I, I'm looking for this. And then they have, the knowledge and they can help you right so the, your store experience is very different from your online experience where you're on your own so what we basically do is we we enable our technology enables the website to create a page that answers all of that on one page like you could have your your the products you could have the the, the store locations or wherever you could do click and collect well melbourne is probably a bad example right now but like click and collect like somewhere in sydney right now and then also the reviews or you can have, have them ordered by rating so it's basically our technology does what your what your shop assistant would do in the shop, curate your experience for what you actually asked for on that first page. That's quite extraordinary. How long did it take you to develop that? Oh God, it's um, yeah, uh, a long time. So the first time I I personally worked with this way of optimizing or or like looking at websites was uh, two thousand eight two thousand nine in Europe. It's a very different space. It was in the real estate space. So how do we make websites more flexible? How do we cater for the long tail of search when people search for something very specific. And then Long Tail UX was, um, I founded this uh, together with uh, Will Sento, uh, my business partner. We founded the company in 2013. So that's been seven years. Um, and then the first thing what we did is we, our first product was really this flexible landing page technology to get into the website. How can we make websites more flexible with like a plugin? But then over the last seven years, we yeah, well, it's further developed. So it, it's, it's, it's been quite a long, long development to get the product to where it is right now that you can pretty much get something, you get it into a new web, into a website within two weeks. And then you have all these capabilities of being so flexible and create this experience for, for customers on the website. Um, you can go live within two weeks. That's quite extraordinary. Now, now how, mm. so how, how many people does Longtail have with um, So we have uh, 35 staff. And um, so they're all from Sydney or most of them are in Sydney. We have, um, a small team internationally, um, but they're, 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 they're in sales. So we have, uh, someone in the U S someone in the UK, someone in, uh, in Madrid. And then we also have a partner in Japan, but 30 people are here in the office in Sydney. You're obviously expanding in Australia with clients like Dan Murphy. Are you planning to expand internationally? 
Um, yes, yeah, so we already have international clients. We have clients on five continents, really. And um, but the majority of our customers, eighty percent, is still over here in in Australia. So of course, when you think about e-commerce, it's global. The internet is global, uh, and I think Australia is probably between one and two percent of the global e-commerce market. So for us, the opportunity is 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 massive internationally because this, yeah, we we can service clients from here. Like that's the beauty about the internet. And so, no doubt, you'll be uh, you'll be looking to uh, expand overseas. No doubt. Yeah, one one hundred percent. So we already have have salespeople overseas, and and once we get more clients, we'll also service clients from there. But the, the headquarter will stay over here. This is basically where the uh, well, where the the headquarter, the brains, the the technology, all our developers sit. And so there's no no plans to change that. And all the uh, R and D will keep sitting here. Is that right? Oh, and all the R&D, exactly, yeah. We, we, we do that from here, yeah. Where we service then clients and, and help them to implement, that will be at some point international. But right now, we actually do this all from here. And final question, how do you recruit people? Well, very much um, it starts like this with video calls. Um, so um, we, uh, well, we, uh, some, of, some of people we found through network uh, were just, they heard what we do, like people from past uh, companies, past colleagues. Uh, we knew they were really good, and and they now work with us. Um, but yeah, we just we just have a job description, put it out there on Seek, on LinkedIn, all the usual channels. Get a lot of applications. At the moment, we get a lot of applications, of course, because unfortunately, it's like for job seekers, it's a very tough market. Um, and then we start just looking at the CVs and and doing video calls. And then at some point, then later, we get we invite them into the office and, and do like individual interviews. Well, Andreas, it's been fantastic talking to you and uh, all the best for long tail. Thank you very much. Well, thanks very much. And now let's talk to economist Saul Eslake. Saul Eslake, what's your assessment of the budget? Well, I think it's a reasonable budget and it's one that in the broad is appropriate for the highly unusual circumstances in which we now find ourselves in our first recession for 30 years and our worst recession for 80 years. I do have some reservations, which I'll go into later, about whether the government's response is the most effective way of navigating a course through and out of the recession that we're currently in. But when it comes to questions like the size of the deficits which the government is projecting for this financial year and beyond, or the level of debt to which it will rise as a result of those deficits over the next four years, and indeed over the remainder of the decade, I've got no particular criticism of that at all. I think that is the sort of thing that the government should be prepared to do in these circumstances. And indeed, if it wasn't, we'd be talking about a deeper and longer recession and a more fragile recovery from it. Okay, okay. So uh, the issue of servicing the debt won't be an issue with interest rates so low. No, that's, that's precisely the point, that with interest rates so low, despite the fact that the government's gross debt and will be in excess of a trillion dollars within 24 months, and the net debt will probably get close to a trillion dollars by the end of the decade as well, if not more than that, we are more than capable of servicing that debt at the sort of interest rates the Reserve Bank is telling us, among other people, that we're going to have for at least the next few years. As a proportion of GDP, the amount that the government will be spending on interest is smaller than it was in each of the years between 20. 
2013-14 when the coalition first came to office and 2018-19 and it's substantially less than the government was spending on interest during for example the 1980s and 90s and even the level of debt though that is at a record high in terms of dollars is smaller as a proportion of GDP than it was in any year between 1901 when we became an independent nation and the late 1950s. So what are your reservations about whether this will get us out of the recession? Well, my reservation is that the budget is heavily reliant on businesses and households responding positively to the incentives which the budget provides. Now, in the case of business, those are incentives to invest in new capital equipment and the like and to hire workers. In the case of households, through the bringing forward of the personal income tax cuts that were previously scheduled to come into effect on the 1st of July 22, it's an expectation that they will take out of their pockets the money which the treasurer is proudly proclaiming he's putting into them and spend it in ways that will help to prop up businesses and create new jobs. Now, when it comes to the first of those things, the incentives for business, I suspect the incentives to hire apprentices and to hire younger people aged between 16 and 35 will work. In particular, if you look at it from the perspective of a business, a business whose revenues remain down would find it a fairly easy decision to let go of any apprentices they might have or not take on new apprentices at the beginning of the year. And we know from research that's been done by the Treasury, among others, which it would appear the Treasurer has himself read, that people who are unfortunate enough to enter the labour market for the first time in a year like this one, not only find it harder to get their first job, but once they have, tend to earn significantly less over the following eight to 10 years than people who entered the labor market in much better times. So the job hire credit scheme, as they call it, the 200 or $100 a week subsidy for new hires of people aged between 16 and 35 who've been on JobSeeker for one of the three previous months is I think well targeted towards meeting an area of genuine need and I think business will respond to that. The only thing we have to be careful about is that businesses don't see that as an excuse to sack older workers and replace them with younger ones who get paid less and get their pay subsidized. The government has tried to address that by stipulating a requirement that in order to be eligible for the subsidies, businesses not only have to prove that they've got more employees as a result, but also that their payroll is higher. As was pointed out to him at the press club immediately after the budget, that doesn't preclude the possibility that an employer who was sufficiently unscrupulous could sack, for example, one older worker and replace him or her with two younger ones and thereby satisfy the test. So an eye will need to be kept on that. But apart from that reservation, I think that element of the budget probably will work. But on the other hand, when it comes to investment allowances, although they have worked in the past in the United States as well as in Australia, Businesses are telling us now through surveys such as those conducted by the ABS that uncertainty about the outlook for the economy and about the demand for their products from their customers is weighing much more heavily on their investment decisions than investment incentives from the government. And moreover, it's perhaps worth noting that if the, to the extent that 
the investment incentives are successful in inducing businesses to spend more on capital equipment, almost all the capital equipment that they're likely to buy, be it the fabled utes that are the favourite toy of the Prime Minister's much-beloved trade use, or whether it's laptops or coffee machines or any other piece of heavy machinery, that's almost certain to be imported. And hence, a good deal of the stimulus that's expected to provide will actually be to the economy of Thailand or Korea or Germany or China or wherever those imported capital equipment actually come from. Yes, it'd be put to good use in ways that might generate jobs, but as I say, there's a doubt in my mind, at least, as to whether that will be as effective a tool for inducing increased investment as it has been in the past. And then we come to the personal income tax cuts, which, as I say, undoubtedly will put more money into people's pockets. But the key question is whether those people will take it out and spend it in ways that will boost jobs. And the history and the economic theory isn't so helpful in that regard. I mean, almost unavoidable. These income tax cuts that are being brought forward by two years give more benefits to middle income and higher income taxpayers than they do to lower income ones, even though the government's obviously sensitive to that criticism in not bringing forward the third tranche of the tax cuts that starts on July 24, which are undoubtedly more skewed to higher income earners. And they have, again, in order to address the perception that the tax cuts are skewed towards middle income earners, given another year of the so-called lamington, that is the public service word for the low and middle income tax offset, that was the vehicle they used for delivering the first tranche of those tax cuts in the September quarter of last year. Now, what the history of that episode tells us is that those tax cuts that were delivered in the first second half of last year which were primarily directed towards low and middle income earners, were predominantly saved. And you'd think in current circumstances where people who, for example, know that their job is being supported by JobKeeper, which is set to expire on the 31st of March next year, or people who are currently using the mortgage repayment holiday, but know that when that holiday ends, they'll face longer, or bigger mortgage repayments, uh, people in that situation are probably going to think that it might be a better idea to put some money away for the possibility that they might not have a job when JobKeeper ends or that they will have to make higher mortgage repayments when the mortgage repayment holiday ends. Or people who are close enough to retirement to be thinking about the adequacy of their superannuation might think that they want to put their tax cuts into their superannuation fund, which of course is something that is very incentivized by the tax system to do if you're at that stage of your life. So as I say, there's a significant chance that the personal income tax cuts will in significant proportion be saved or used to pay down debt rather than spent. And there was an alternative to that, which would have been much more effective. If the government had left the tax cuts where they were to come into effect in July 22, but instead used the money that they'll forego by bringing them forward, to give every household in Australia, all about 10 and a half million of them, a voucher which could have been worth, say, somewhere between $1,500 and $2,000. A voucher which would expire worthless if it wasn't used by 30 June 22, say, which could be sold if a person thought they couldn't use it to someone else who could, but then could only be spent in perhaps four prescribed areas. One would be 
areas of the economy that are subject to ongoing restrictions for health reasons like tourism or the arts and in that sense it would be similar to the successful voucher schemes that the Northern Territory and Tasmanian governments have done in recent months. A second area might be spending in ways that would help people go back to work such as childcare for example or job retraining or training for people. A third area that would be for people who see no reason to spend money on childcare or retraining, such as pensioners, uh, could use it to pay their electricity bills or council rates or some other essential like that. Or fourthly, given that the housing industry is almost certainly going to face a crunch because of what the budget revealed about the negative net migration we're going to have this year and next, and more generally the slowdown in population growth, bearing in mind that most of the growth in the underlying demand for new housing over the last 20 years has come from immigration, that you could perhaps say you could put your voucher to use doing renovations on your own home or as a deposit on a first home. And all of those things would have guaranteed that the money would have been spent rather than saved or used to pay down debt would have guaranteed that it would be spent when you want it to be spent, that is when the economy has it at its weakest. And third, would have guaranteed that the money would have been spent either in the areas of the economy that are weakest or in ways that would most help people get back to work. And the treasurer could have claimed inspiration for an idea like that from Milton Friedman, because Friedman was through his academic career, one of the champions of the use of vouchers as a tool of government policy. So while understandably the treasurer is reluctant to quote Maynard Keynes, for example, in defense of changing his mind about the fiscal strategy, as many people will know, Maynard Keynes is supposed to have said in response to criticism of him for changing his mind a lot, which he did, uh, that when the facts change, I change my mind, sir, what do you do? It would obviously be heresy for a modern liberal treasurer to be quoting a liberal and an avowed homosexual like Maynard Keynes as inspiration. That would almost be politically suicidal for a conservative treasurer. But he could at least have claimed Milton Friedman, who was the avowed intellectual godfather to Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan, both of whom uh, Josh Frydenberg has claimed to draw inspiration from until his prime minister slapped him down for mentioning their names. Uh, Milton Friedman would have heartily approved of a scheme like this, which as I say, would have been much more effective in achieving the government's objectives. And would have stimulated the economy. Well, indeed. And, and, and clearly the, the, the government wants to stimulate the economy and it recognises the need to stimulate the economy and good on the treasurer for being so explicit that keeping to the old strategy of reducing deficits and paying down debt would have been, in his words, enormously damaging to the economy at this time. He recognises that the way to repair the budget is to fix the economy, and that's what he's trying to do. I just have some reservations about whether the methods he's chosen to revive the economy are the most effective ones that he could have chosen. Well, Saul Leslie, thank you very much for your clear insights. It's very wise, as always. That's a pleasure, Leon. Thanks for having me thank on you. the program. So what's happening in the news? Well, the International Monetary Fund has warned countries not to withdraw economic support prematurely to prevent further setbacks in the fight against the coronavirus pandemic. In its latest World Economic Outlook, the IMF says the economic recovery is not assured while the pandemic continues to spread. The International Monetary Fund foresees a steep fall in international growth this year 
as the global economy struggles to recover from the pandemic-induced recession, its worst collapse in nearly a century. The IMF estimated that the global economy will shrink 4.4% for 2020. That would be the worst annual plunge since the Great Depression of the 1930s. By comparison, the international economy contracted by a far smaller 0.1% after the devastating 2008 financial crisis. The Monetary Fund's forecast for 2020 in its latest World Economic Outlook does represent an upgrade of 0.8 percentage points from its previous forecast in June. The IMF attributed the slightly less dire forecast to faster-than-expected rebounds in some countries, notably China, and to government rescue aid that was enacted by the United States and other major industrial countries. But the 189-nation lending agency cautioned that many developing countries, notably India, are faring worse than expected, in large part because of the resurgent virus. Many nations face a threat of economic reversals if government support is withdrawn too quickly, the IMF warned. And fund manager, IFM Investors, has committed to reducing greenhouse gas emissions across its asset classes, targeting net zero by 2015. IFM has established a task force to support the commitment aligning with the Paris Agreement, spearheaded by its investment team. The task force will be responsible for setting frameworks and policies to mitigate the group's climate risk exposure and meet the net zero goal by 2050. The 140 billion IFM investors, chaired by former ACTU Greg Combay and co-owned by 27 of the biggest industry super funds, including Australian Super, Host Plus and Cebus, also controls or has large stake in assets such as the Port of Brisbane, Southern Cross Station in Melbourne and Northern Territory airports. And institutional investors with over $850 billion in Australian assets under management have come together to form a climate league to back deeper emissions reductions for Australia. The private sector focused league launched by 16 institutional investors have each pledged to actively pursue deeper emissions reductions over 10 years in an effort to drive a further reduction in annual greenhouse gas emissions of at least 230 million tonnes on top of what is already projected for the end of the decade. Each year these funds will commit to at least one action to reduce emissions including integrating Paris aligned goals into investment strategies, collaborating between clients and companies or investing in clean energy. The investor group on climate change is coordinating the initiative. And Woodside Petroleum will cut 300 jobs as a result of the collapsing commodity prices in the wake of COVID-19. Chevron, Santos and Allsearch have also reduced employment while global major Shell last month advised it would cut between 7,000 and 9,000 jobs across its worldwide operations over the next two years. This comes in the wake of forecasts by the International Energy Agency that solar power will play a starring role in the recovery of global energy demand after the COVID-19 pandemic. Solar power has been declared the new king of electricity by the International Energy Agency in its annual Energy Outlook report, which finds it's already cheaper than power generated by new coal and gas developments in most countries and is providing some of the lowest cost electricity ever seen. For the first time since the Industrial Revolution, coal-fired power will constitute less than 20% of the world's energy by 2040, according to one scenario in the report, which found the end of the coal era has been accelerated by the COVID-19 pandemic. It is predicting that growth in oil demand will end within a decade and has ranged in expectations for gas use. Even without any change in policies and targets by governments, renewables will take centre stage in the world's energy mix, the IEA declared in its closely watched World Energy Outlook, which comes after an extremely turbulent year in the sector due to the COVID-19 pandemic. And the Australian coal industry is bracing for another hit to Australian exports to China after state-owned energy provider and steel mills reportedly received verbal notice to stop importing Australian coal. 
the Australian government has not been notified of any formal Chinese direction to restrict coal imports and is preparing to respond to the report from S&P Platts, the global commodities information platform. The move has sparked fears that Australia could be on the cusp of another trade hit as relations with China deteriorate over multiple diplomatic disputes this year. The restrictions on Australian coal would crimp $14 billion in coal exports each year and boost local miners in China as the Chinese Communist Party pumps stimulus into the economy and simultaneously increases its investment in renewable energy. S&P Global Platts and Argus Media first reported news of a coal ban this week, sending shares in some Australian coal exporters down. Whitehaven coal stock dropped 75.7% on Monday. As with China's previous unofficial restrictions on Australian coal, it is difficult to assess the direct impact on Australian coal exports as no written notice has been issued because the Chinese government does not want to leave evidence of proposed restrictions, which could be a breach of World Trade Organization rules. And a network of business leaders from Bunnings to Microsoft have joined forces to form an alliance to help nut out how to best address mental health at work. Corporate Mental Health Alliance Australia is part of a global city mental health alliance network founded in the UK in 2012. The local arm is launching October 13 and is a business-led, expert-guided member organisation dedicated to improving mental health in the workplace. The 15 founding members, many of them competitors, realised that working together will give them the best chance of delivering real impact on the mental well-being of staff. Members include AIA Australia, Allianz Australia, Clayton Utes, Coles Group, Commonwealth Bank, Deloitte, DLI Paper, Johnson & Johnson Family Companies, King & Wood Mallisons, KPMG, Minter Ellison, Woolworths Group and PwC Australia. The establishment of a non-profit group comes at a time when mental health issues in the workplace are increasing. According to Safe Work Australia, more than 92% of work-related mental health condition claims can be attributed to work-related mental stress including work pressure, harassment or bullying, exposure to workplace violence and sexual or racial harassment. The cost to the Australian economy of mental health and suicide is in the order of 43 to $51 billion per annum. And business reopenings in Melbourne will be delayed and phased in over the next month. And Victorian Premier Daniel Andrews has confirmed the state is unlikely to meet its key case indicators to enable the next round of relaxations from October the 19th. Premier Andrews appears to have dashed hopes that thousands of Melbourne businesses will be able to reopen next week, suggesting the next restrictions to be eased would focus on increased social interaction rather than economic measures. Retail, hairdressers, beauty therapists and outdoor dining were flagged to reopen with strict hygiene protocols under the third step in easing restrictions from October 19 if Victoria hit a rolling 14-day case average of five or lower and fewer than five mystery cases in a fortnight. On Sunday, the Premier gave his strongest hint yet about which restrictions could be eased from next Monday, saying the five-kilometre travel limit was among measures that the government would consider lifting for metropolitan Melbourne. Mr Andrews suggested that economic measures would not be among those lifted in Melbourne, while in regional Victoria, where case numbers were lower, restrictions on businesses could be further eased. And the new coronavirus may remain infectious for weeks on banknotes, glass and other common surfaces, according to research by Australia's top biosecurity laboratory that highlights risks from paper currency, mobile phones, grab handles and rails. Scientists at the Australian Centre for Disease Preparedness showed SARS-CoV-2 is extremely robust, surviving for 28 days on smooth surfaces such as glass found on mobile phone screens and plastic banknotes at room temperatures, or 20 degrees Celsius, at 68 degrees Fahrenheit. That compares with 17 days for survival for the flu virus. Virus survival declined to less than a day at 40 degrees on some surfaces, according to the study published by in Virology Journal. The findings add to evidence that COVID-19 causing coronavirus survives for longer and cooler weather 
making it potentially harder to control in winter than summer. And a week after the federal budget allocated it a $231.6 million war chest for 2020-21, Tourism Australia has launched its biggest domestic marketing push since COVID-19 hit, releasing a $7 million 60-second commercial under its Holiday Here This Year campaign. It's aimed at getting more Australians to spend up on local holidays and follows an unlucky run for the nation's peak tourism body over the past 10 months, starting with the cancellation of Kylie Minogue's popular mate song campaign in Britain in January due to bushfires followed by the coronavirus. The federal government has been up front that with Australia's international borders closed for the foreseeable future, they need Australians to plug the economic gap by travelling to regions like Uluru and the Blue Mountains that used to be teeming with international tourists. More than 10 million Australians usually spend $65 billion on overseas holidays each year. The government is hoping that about $12 billion of this can be substituted in the domestic market. And Commonwealth Bank's ubiquitous diamond logo is getting its first makeover since privatisation almost 30 years ago. As the bank seeks to portray the country's measured optimism about recovery from COVID-19 and a devastating bushfire season, Group Executive Marketing and Corporate Affairs Priscilla Brown said the minimal redesign, which retains a dominant yellow diamond but replaces a black wedge with a deeper shade of yellow, also reflected lessons learned from the Financial Services Royal Commission. The brighter yellow was also more appropriate for digital use, an important factor given the surging popularity of digital channels which has been fanned by the pandemic as customers avoid the human contacting branches. In its 2020 annual result, CBA said digital accounted for 66% of the value of the bank's transactions, up from 59% in 2018 and 52% in 2016. Users of the ComBank app surged to 6.1 million, up from 5 million in June 2018 and 3.7 million in 2016. Despite the huge changes in the business environment since CBA first opened its doors in 1911, this will only be the fourth time that the logo has been refreshed. The yellow diamond and black wedge, representing the points of the Southern Cross Star Constellation, emerged from the last makeover in 1991, before the advent of digital. And Commonwealth Bank has narrowly avoided a first strike over plans to change how it pays its top bankers and a $1.6 million no-strings-attached gift, CEO Matt Komen. At its virtual annual meeting on Tuesday, it also said it is keen on restoring its dividend after the prudential regulator insisted it to be curtailed to help mop up bad debts from the crisis. The voting on remuneration... Item 3 and 4 on the agenda went down to the wire. The bank revealed substantial protest votes of 21% were lodged against the executive remuneration proposal and the resolution to grant Mr Komen $1.6 million in restricted share units. Several staff members suggested it was not fair that they were being offered a 1.5% pay increase when other banks were offering 3%. And Bank of Queensland profits have dropped heavily amid the coronavirus pandemic but the lender has finally cracked open its dividend payouts. The bank's full-year statutory profits slumped 61% to $115 million, with the lender taking a massive $175 million impairment expense for problem loans. That includes a $133 million buffer for potential repayment disasters among customers caused by COVID-19. But the bank also opened up its dividends, offering a payout of $0.12 cents for the year. That is split over two halves, with Bank of Queensland having deferred a dividend payout from its earlier result. That is still down heavily on the $0.65 payout a year earlier. Fellow regional lender Bendigo and Adelaide Bank in its results in August deferred a final payout. And Australia's business bankruptcies have jumped for the first time since June, with new data showing a 23% increase in defaults in September, and Victorian Queensland worse hit. Monthly data from the Credit and What Business Risk Review found the number of businesses entering administration also rose by 11% in the month 
despite continued efforts from the federal government to stave off insolvency administrators. However, the increase in defaults and insolvencies as recorded by Credit Watch, based on Australian Securities Investment Commission data, showed a patchy and uneven rate of failure across the country. Queensland recorded the largest jump in businesses entering administration, up 24.1% in September, following a fall of 25.4% the month before. Victoria saw a 23.8% increase after a drop of 49.3% in August. And 160,000 of Australia's 2 million small businesses could ultimately be felled by the coronavirus, says Judo Bank, which also estimates $40 billion in unproductive debt will be left on SME balance sheet when the pandemic clears, demanding careful management to avoid it dragging on the economic recovery. Judo's internal analysis has found almost 8% of the 2 million SMEs, mostly at the smaller end of the market, may not recover from the crisis. Judo says they are covering $40 billion of unproductive debt that will be sitting as deadweight cost. And that's it for this week. And next week I'll be talking to In Moments Managing Director David Blakers, who will explore the state of Australia's business pivots to digital. And I'll be talking to IFM Investors Economist Alex Joyner about the state of the Australian economy in recession. In the meantime, you can find me on Twitter at TalkingBizBowDoubleZed, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. And if you want, leave a comment. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. 